wanting to be an astronaut led me to want to become an aerospace engineer, which the reason I chose that path was I, I decided I wanted to be an astronaut when I was seven. I saw the first space shuttle launch on television. It was uh, STS-1, 12 April 1981, and I got goosebumps. I got chills up my spine. You know, you just have that moment where you know that's what you're supposed to do. I had that moment. This is Professional Confessionals. We're joined today by pilot and associate professor at U.S. Military Academy at West Point, Colonel Tanya Estes. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us, Tanya. Thank you. Let's dive right in. Let's talk about your path to the present moment. You started flying at an early age. When did you become interested in becoming a pilot and how did that initial interest lead you to West Point? So my love of flying goes back to really when I was about three, four years old. Uh, my grandmother lived it, we're from Cleveland, Ohio, and she lived under one of the approaches into Cleveland Hopkins International. And so if you go in the, I used to go in the backyard as a little kid and just lay in the grass and watch the planes fly over. And at that point, they were pretty low. They're only a few hundred feet off the ground, and they looked massive. And I just totally fell in love with the idea of flying. I also remember my, my family bought into it pretty early. I can recall a book, and I wish I knew the title of it, but it was basically a kind of a 1950s book, 1940s book for kids on how to become an airline pilot. And I remember reading it and seeing the illustrations, and I I was kind of working on the path for how I was going to get there. Really, the military came into play uh, when I was in middle school. I decided I wanted to be a military pilot and that that was going to be a good path for me to move forward in my career. So I got involved in sea cadets. Uh, so sort of Navy, which I shouldn't talk about this week. It's Army Navy week. Uh, my daughter's Naval ROTC, so I guess that panned out. But then I ended up in Civil Air Patrol, which was more focused kind of on the Air Force side of things. And these programs are designed for young people, middle school, high school, to be involved in the military and get a taste of it before they actually decide to, to join up. Early on, I had been told that uh, I was interested in the military academy because I was like, I wanted to be an officer. And that was one of the the most direct ways to get there and to get your education at the same time. And so I'd been told early on that, oh, you've got to have a 4.0 GPA and be captain of, you know, the football team and the gymnastics team. And uh, your eyes have to be perfect. You got to have 20 just to get into the academy. And uh, I later found out that was all um, a bit of a misnomer. And so applied to go to the academy Um, But I really started flying at 14. Uh, I had four different jobs in high school to pay for it, working at Radio Shack, a Chinese restaurant, for an Italian tailor, uh, quite a few different jobs, and ultimately working at the flight school that I took lessons from, which was good because I could just push the money from one side to the other. (laughs) I started flying at 14, had my first flight lesson. I soloed at 16, which is the earliest you can solo. I actually soloed two days before I got my driver's license. So my mom had to drive me to the airport so I could fly a plane by myself, which is a great story to tell. And then earned my pilot's license at 17, which is the earliest you can do that, and got selected to attend West Point and came to the military academy, uh, bound and determined to be an aerospace engineer. But I also wanted to go aviation in the Army. So the Army has several different branches you can choose from, infantry, armor, medical service, signal corps. Um, And aviation is one of those. So I had my sights set on being an Army aviator and immediately was told as a plebe, as a freshman, uh, oh, you're too short to be an aviator. And and I knew that was the case. So I started pursuing an exception to policy because they told me flat out, you're you're just not going to make the requirement. It's not even a standing height. It's fingertip to fingertip, your reach. Uh, your sitting height and your leg length, and I was too short on two of those. Is that based on the controls and the aircrafts? Yes. So originally, the aircraft were designed against standard man. So you took somebody roughly five foot nine, five foot ten, and then they took standard dimensions off of a male that, and then they kind of do a bell curve off that, and they figure those that fall within the curve generally are going to be able to fly the aircraft. These aircraft were designed for men. They were designed in the sixties and the seventies. And there were not women military pilots when they were originally being designed, except the Apache. That one came a little bit later. But they were not designing uh, for smaller people. When the, when the Army started to allow women to fly, they quickly realized that if you were just going to use that requirement, it would disqualify quite a few of the women who would be interested in flying. 
So what they started to do was what's known as a cockpit evaluation. So uh, they put me in a Huey cockpit. Well, actually, back up. They, I was looked at by the warrant officer at Second Aviation uh, up at Stewart when I was a cadet. And he said, yeah, you'll be all right. <laughs> and he signed off on it. But my my exception to policy said that I would only be allowed to fly the Huey. And the irony is I've never flown the Huey. So I think it really just got my foot in the door. And then it was a matter of what are you going to be able to do when you get there? Uh, so graduate from West Point, uh, aerospace engineer, very tough major, but absolutely loved it. And uh, went down to Fort Rucker, which is where we learned how to fly in the Army. And I got out to the flight line, and the, the one of the pilots out there, an instructor pilot, took one look at me, and I mimicked the, the accent, and he's like, there's no way in hell you're going to be able to fly this aircraft. And I said, can I try? He's like, there was a girl that was taller than you couldn't fly this aircraft just last year. And I'm like, okay. But uh, I ended up honor grad. Um, and I think a lot of it was I already had a lot of air sense uh, from having already been a pilot. So a lot of the things that my classmates were having to struggle to learn for the very first time, I already understood. So um, how weather works and, and speaking on the radios and you know what's a traffic pattern and how do you navigate and all those things I'd already learned. So I was able to kind of use that extra time to focus on you know little tricks for myself to be able to get around the height issue, which really didn't bear out to be a serious issue at all. One of the worries that they had was that I wouldn't have a good control touch because my, my right arm, which is controlling the cyclic, which changes the pitch of the of blades uh, cyclically throughout the range of, of rotation, I'd have to have the arm straight out and couldn't rest my elbow on my knee. And they thought, oh, your control touch will be horrible. You'll get too tired. You won't be able to control the aircraft properly. But I think one advantage, and this is something that's an advantage for women in aviation, we tend not to over-control the aircraft as much. So I think we have much smaller movements than than men naturally like to do. So I think that was an advantage. But uh, I think having the flight experience prior to going to Fort Rucker really made it much more possible. But since then, there have been several women uh, that were smaller in stature who have gone through with success. So I think that that is not as much of a concern as it was in my era. We were still sort of kind of pushing the bow wave of some of the first women in combat aviation. Uh, So that was part of it. And I chose to fly the Apache, which interestingly enough, uh, was not even available to me. If I, my plebe year when I came to West Point freshman year, uh, we still had the combat exclusionary rule for aviation, which meant that women could not fly in combat aircraft. It was lifted in 1993, halfway through my time at West Point, and so I was very excited to select the Apache as my aircraft of choice, and uh, so we were really kind of that, that first wave of women in that community, which came with its, its uh, excitement and also with its, its difficulties, as you could well imagine. Can you tell us what distinguishes the Apache from and why you, you prefer it? So the Apache is uh, probably the world's most advanced attack helicopter. We're the ones who, you know, we're, we're doing the escorts for the big guys that are big targets like the Chinook or the Blackhawks. And, you know, we're able to, we're the ones who put steel on target. So we support the ground mission. So if there's an infantry unit that is uh, under an attack and they call in us and Big Brother rolls in and we can roll in with Hellfire missiles, which is a precision uh, laser-guided weapon system. We can uh, we have 2.75-inch folding fin rockets, 30-millimeter chain gun. We come with the heavy stuff. And so it's really an exciting mission to be able to support people on the ground. Although later in my career, I ended up becoming an instructor pilot, uh, which absolutely it, it demonstrated to me that I really enjoyed teaching, which is something that I hadn't really had the chance to do yet. And it was it was exciting to be able to take somebody who I, I jokingly say could barely identify an Apache two out of three times on the flight line and have them successfully pass their check ride. And you realized, wow, I had something to do with that. And, and that kind of sparked my desire to want to teach, which ultimately led me to apply to teach at West Point and earn a master's degree. I came back and taught from 04 to 07 and then went back out, ran an airfield in Kuwait, and uh, uh, we were responsible for several uh, air traffic control facilities in Iraq. And then I decided, you know, I, I really want to make teaching in the Army my career for the rest of my Army career. And so I applied to come back and teach at West Point a second time. This time was sent to get a Ph.D. in human-centered computing. And I've been teaching at West Point ever since. 
I do continue to fly. I'm also a civilian pilot. That's how I started out. And I earned my certified flight instructor rating several years ago, about 14 years ago now, and started using that as part of my duties at West Point. So I run the West Point flying team. We actually uh, do competitive flying events against other schools, primarily in the Northeastern United States. There's, there is competitive flying. Uh, a lot of people don't realize what we do. It's precision power on and power off landings. There's a navigation event. There's a message drop event, which kind of harkens back to the airmail days. And uh, we also have several ground events that the cadets compete in. So I've been able to continue flying on my civilian side quite a bit, even as an instructor. Although I often get people come into my office. I have a lot of AH-64 Apache uh, models up. And they're like, do you still get to fly? And I'm like, I still fly, just not that, which is <laughs> unfortunate. But because uh, the Apache definitely is the Maserati of helicopters. It's, it's amazing to fly. What a whirlwind. So I would say the qualities that are best suited for someone to become a pilot, to become an aviator, um, you have to be able to make pretty quick decisions. That's not to say you're going to make perfect decisions. Uh, I I tell cadets all the time, a 70% solution on time is better than a 100% solution too late. Don't know who to attribute that to, but I've used that a lot. It's very good. (laughs) It's true. um, And it's true in combat, too. So it's not just aviation. It's really true in anything that we do. Uh, So you have to be able to very quickly take in a lot of information and make hopefully very good decisions. Sound sound judgment is extremely important. You have to be a good communicator. Uh, Most of the things we do, uh, speaking with air traffic control, speaking with other members of the unit if you're in the military, you should be good with other people. So oftentimes you're working with a crew. Uh, Very rarely you can fly solo, single pilot. But it, when you get to the level of um, higher and, you know, you're talking about the Apache, the Black Hawk, the Chinook, the C-12, all of those aircraft are, are really two pilot aircraft. So you're going to be working with at least one other person, sometimes with many. Um, if you're in the CH-47 in the Chinook, you're not only working with, a, with another pilot, but also several crew chiefs that are coordinating and doing things that are extremely important with, with respect to the aircraft in flight. Communication is definitely an important skill. You don't have to have a technical degree. You can you can be an English major and and become a, a pilot. But I think being comfortable with with mechanical things, being comfortable with, for example, if you've always been fascinated by well, how does an, an engine work, you're going to learn that. You're going to have to learn the systems of the aircraft. How does the engine work? How does what's the how does the oil system work? The fuel system. These are all things you're going to become familiar with to be a, a proficient aviator. You'd want to be somebody who's interested and just fascinated by aviation, by weather. Uh, Weather, as you can well imagine, greatly dictates uh, everything we're able to do. So a fascination with those things certainly helps. But again, you don't have to have had a formal education in any of those things. I'm an aerospace engineer, but that really isn't a prerequisite to become a pilot. Um, I think just an interest and a fascination and a desire to learn about those types of things. I think another thing, um, I won't say you have to have nerves of steel. I've certainly been in some scary situations, but you definitely want to be composed, even if you are scared. I've had a few times when an aircraft have done things that uh, were, were dangerous or scary and your heart's pounding out of your chest, but you have to just sound completely calm and collected. So being able to, to manage that is very important. And that's something that, that you learn. It certainly helps if you don't have motion sickness. Although interestingly enough, there's some people who suffer from motion sickness when they drive or when they are a passenger who do fine. So if you're one of those people who's sitting in the passenger seat of a car, you're, you're, you know, feeling not that comfortable, um, but you're fine when you're driving. Often the same is true in flying. So I've known several pilots who hate to be a passenger for somebody else, but if they're on the controls, they know what they're doing. They, they know what, what, corrections they're making as they're getting bounced around by turbulence and things like that. So I tend to think that, you know, I, I would caution that people who say, oh, I get motion sickness, I'd be terrible at this. Actually, you might not. And I would definitely give it a try and probably give it a few tries. I've, I've met people who, several pilots who have said, gosh, you know, the first flight, I was so uncomfortable. I, I kind of felt a little queasy. But then after a few more flights, I felt fine. So that would be something I'd caution people on. And, and there's also no such thing as age. I've met several pilots who started learning to fly when they were 40, 50, 60. Uh, it's not um, just for the young. And that's something that I, I've seen people say. And I'm like, no, if you've got a desire and the wherewithal and the, and the ability to, to get out there and do it, 
and you have some of those traits, I think it can it can completely be done. Good reflexes too. That's a classic. Uh, quick reflexes are helpful too. So the knowledge uh, and of the way the aircraft operates and its systems is important. I I'm hearing as a pilot, is that so that when things do go wrong, you can very quickly figure out what it is and how to remedy the situation? Absolutely. So that's one of the most important reasons why we learn the aircraft systems. Uh, First of all, so that you, not even just when emergencies occur, but just when basic things, uh, the other day I was flying with a cadet and he had, he had missed a step in the, in the pre-flight checklist. And Immediately, I was like, oh, you've got the mixture, you have the mixture advanced uh, all the way forward. So a lot of it's just understanding how the aircraft works. You can very quickly troubleshoot emergencies and non-emergencies and understand why this might not be working. Just trying to start an aircraft, you know, you're like, why isn't this aircraft? Oh, well, here, this is why we missed something. We're very methodical. You live by the checklist. I get a little nervous when I fly with people who don't use a checklist. So... But yeah, knowing the systems is is key. I've had a few emergencies that did not have a light or any information that was revealed immediately to you by looking at your instruments. And so it does help to have a working understanding of, okay, what might be causing this problem and how should I handle it? So I had, I've had, uh, not too long ago, a few years ago, I had was flying an aircraft down the Hudson, and the basically the, the pin that connects the throttle cable to the engine had sheared. And there's no indication of this in the cockpit. You don't get a light. You don't get any kind of warning. I just would advance the throttle, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, the RPM was stuck at, I think, about 2,100 RPM. And I was kind of in a, a, a kind of a slower airspeed than I would have liked, and at a lower altitude than I would have liked with this. But there was no way to diagnose the problem from the cockpit. And so you, know, you might have said, well, if you're able to fly and everything looks kind of okay, just continue on with your plan. But I turned around, and as I was flying back to the airfield that I had taken off from, I was going to be flying past Stewart Airport. And I remember thinking, yeah, I don't know exactly what's going on here, and I would be a fool not to land right now. And so I requested a precautionary landing and got it and was able to safely land. And then we found out what had happened. But there's certainly instances where knowing the systems uh, can help you. For example, if you see an oil PSI light come on, you know you really need to land the aircraft immediately because your engine's now no longer getting you know appropriate oil. It could potentially seize. There's things that can, can take place because of that. And so having a working knowledge is extremely important. There's several different aviation scenarios that have happened. You look at, there's one that's not as commonly known, uh, Sioux City, Iowa, I believe 1988, I want to say, or 89. There was a, an aircraft that had a, a, the engine number three, which is right in front of the, the tail, through a fan, a uh, fan blade. And it cut through the vertical portion of the tail. I won't get too technical in the empennage and all that. And unfortunately, it had a single point of failure. All the hydraulics went through that point. And they, they had no way to control the aircraft. And they're at, you know, maybe 30,000 feet with 300 people. Between the pilot, the co-pilot, the flight engineer, and a gentleman who happened to be one of the senior instructor pilots on that aircraft who was deadheading in the back, they, decide, they came up with a way to control the aircraft using differential thrust. This is not something that's necessarily taught to pilots. So this was them creatively finding a way to get this aircraft safely on the ground. Unfortunately, not everybody lived, but they had about 200 of the 300 survive. And really, this should not have been possible. I mean, it's like Sully Sullenberger on the Hudson, you know, Tammy Joe Schultz, uh, you know, that you, you just work through the problem and figure out a way to safely get everybody on the ground. So that goes back to that. A working knowledge of the systems, you can understand what may be causing the problem, diagnose it, and then find a way to work around it and safely get back to the ground with everyone on board, hopefully safe. Do you think your profession has changed you? If so, how? Yes, I would definitely say my profession has changed me over the years. When you're young, you think you know it all and, and you've, you've got all the answers. And I think my profession, my both of my professions, being a pilot and being a uh, professor at the academy, both changed my perspective. So this is something I caution a lot of young people on when they'll be like, they'll speak with absolute certainty about something. And I'll be like, you know, you've got to learn to leave some doubt. I listened to someone recently, you know, say, well, I know this is true. And this is true. 
And I said, well, are you sure? Well, yes. And I said, you know, in, in, as a scientist, as a, as a researcher, you always have to have some room for doubt. And so that's something I've learned over the years, because I think when I was you know, younger as a person, I, I was much more certain about everything. And now I, I say, you know, for example, earning a PhD, you go, well, we saw this uh, effect and we think that this is what caused it, that we, you know, that this particular condition that we implemented. But it could have been this. It could have been this. And more study needs to be done to explore the, if those could have been the causes. And so I think that that's one thing that, that being a, a, a scientist, being a professor has changed about me. And I think on the aviation side, I've become much more patient, uh, and that's partly also being a mother teaches you patience. I think also on the aviation side, being very methodical, so not just kind of rushing through something or, or making decisions by the seat of your pants, but having a much more methodical, systematic approach to everything I do. I mean, I, I even joke with my colleagues when I'm teaching, I'm like, I don't have it all in my head. I use a checklist. I have to use a checklist. I've got to look things up. Whereas I think when I was younger, it was all, oh, I just got to know this stuff. So I'd say those are things that have definitely changed me. But but yeah, the, the patience, again, partly attributed to having a child, greatly attributed to raising a daughter, um, who's absolutely wonderful. But that, that was a huge part of that. And then being much more methodical, being much more open to question, open to other possibilities for for cause and effect in various aspects. If, if I think that's probably the best way to summarize those. Do you generally like the people that you work with, those that are have been attracted to the field that you work alongside with as colleagues? Absolutely. Um, I really enjoy being around other pilots. There's times you run into, especially being a woman in the community, there's times you run into some of the older uh, generation who kind of look at you a little askance until they see that you really, you know, are part of the profession and that you're part of the field. But even the really older folks that I've encountered, once you start talking aviation, they don't care. I mean, we're just all like, there I was. And, you know, you're just telling these stories and the hand motions start, you know, little airplane hand motions and, and explaining all these crazy things you've had happen. Um, you know, I was lost and inverted and, you know, I'm joking, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I think the community is really easy to roll into, uh, regardless of your background. You just you're around other people who love all things that fly, and it's it's just a really simple, easy relationship to roll into. And I would definitely say the same of my colleagues uh, over at West Point. I look forward to going to work every day. I've never you know been like, oh, I, ugh, it's Monday, I have to go in. I actually enjoy going into work. Um, I work with some other just really gifted brilliant people. I, I jokingly say I, I'm, I'm not the smartest in my department. I, my, my background academically, even though I teach computer science, I started as a mech engineer. And so I don't have the same depth in, in computing that a lot of my colleagues have. And, and But even so, it's like they're, they're just wonderful. They're fun to work with. We all complement each other. So if, if I'm not as strong in some area and one of my colleagues is, I have no problem. You know, I had a cadet just the other day ask me about a particular tool that we use. And I said, uh, you know what, that's not really my forte. But I got, here's a few people that I know are really good at that. And, you know, I think we're all really good about doing that. And of course, they're all academics. So they all have that same, you know, skepticism towards certainty of things. And they're always open to new ideas and looking into new concepts. And that's a lot of fun to be around those kinds of people. And, and working with cadets is wonderful. That's probably 99% of the joy of what I do is uh, teaching cadets, mentoring cadets, that's probably the most fun. And of course, in teaching, I, I, a lot of teachers can relate to this. I, I teach for free. You got to pay me to grade. Grading's the hard part. I was <laughs> to say, they're all wonderful. Give them all A's. But that's not how it works. So that's the hard part is the grading. I'd be remiss in not asking you about being a woman in the military, because that is something that, you know, there are news stories about. We occasionally hear of some pretty nasty stories and things that occur would you have any advice for a young woman who's considering a potential career in the military but is perhaps a bit frightened or feeling cautious or uncertain because of that? Absolutely. Um, so there, you, certainly I've been exposed to the stories and have seen things happen in my service. I will say that the, the sad part is 
99% of the time, 99% of the people are doing the right thing. So I, I could go down a laundry list of stories where my men in my unit, my brothers essentially, took care of me um, in situations where they, they could have chosen to do something uh, not appropriate. So that's the good news. Um, and my advice to women would be, first of all, things have changed a lot. So when I first came into the Apache community, um, a lot of the men just didn't want us there. And and I I understand where they're coming from. It's a change. It's something that it's a bit of an upheaval to have a new group of people introduced into this community. And a lot of what we had to do was simply prove that we belonged there. There were some things that were said and done that really would not pass muster today. But at the time, it was we all that were going through it simply, you know, said, well, I'm just going to, there were men who just blatantly said, I don't think women should be Apache pilots. And they'd say it to your face. And I would just shrug and say, well, I will work hard to demonstrate that I do belong here. And I think that attitude kept me moving forward. The other thing that was good was sometimes it's a difference of mission. So when I was in Korea and uh, Fort Bragg and Bosnia, um, our mission, of course, was a, a combat related mission. And there was a lot of resistance in those communities. I think there was a little bit more machismo, a little bit more, a lot of the guys felt threatened by having uh, women in the community. But once I became an instructor pilot, I thought, honestly, when I became an IP, I thought they wouldn't really use me. Like, they'd be like, all right, now you're an instructor pilot, go sit in your office and do work. Um, it was the opposite. So we desperately needed, we, we didn't have enough instructor pilots to put through the number of students that we were expected to. And so it was a complete 180. I had, you know, people asking me, hey, ma'am, can you fly next week? Can you fly nights? Can you fly a guy in the bag? Can you fly a guy in gunnery? Um, and I was really surprised by that because a lot of them were the same men that I'd served with in the previous two tours. And so I think that was the great equalizer. It, it was they, they didn't care if you were male, female, gay, straight. If you were if you could carry students and teach them well and get them to pass their check rides, you were a welcome part of the community. And I think that that was also helped me want to become a teacher. I think that that really positive environment really m changed things for me. But even in the units where I where it was a little more difficult in the beginning, I think once you proved yourself, the guys were great. I mean, they became brothers to me, even though in the beginning, there was it felt, you know, a little bit adversarial. But after a few months, they're like, all right, well, she can fly the aircraft, she can PT, she can shoot, you know, shoot the weapon systems well. And, and they, they kind of came around and said, all right, all right it's okay. Um, I, you heard a lot of, well, you know, I don't, I don't want, I don't like women Apache pilots, but you're okay. And I think that was, I think there were a lot of us that were, that were getting that. And so it slowly, the community eventually got to where they're like, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. And I think now at this point, um, we've had women die in combat alongside their brothers and they, you know, they're like, wow, you know, you're willing to be here. You're willing to take the same risks. You're you're able to do the same things. You have the same skill sets. And so I think the community now is is very different. And a lot of that was paved by men who helped me develop as a pilot. One of the things that I found that helped, if you're in a community that you're just working your way into where you're one of the newest members, a lot of times, I, I hear this a lot, mentorship. So... A lot of times people say, oh, you, you want to try to find a mentor who looks like you or you can relate to. When you're the only woman in the entire unit, um, there is no one that looks like you. There were no women mentors for me. And so I, I try to tell people, don't be afraid to mentor somebody who doesn't look like you, who doesn't remind you of yourself. If you see that drive, that desire, that love of something that you can relate to, reach down and mentor them. Um, I, I kind of I jokingly say I tricked people into mentoring me rather than saying, hey, will you mentor me? Because the, the word mentor, I think, was scary and intimidating to hear. I would find something that like a particular skill or a task that you want to learn how to do and ask them with, to help you with that. So what I did was I said, well, I want to become a pilot in command of the aircraft. And the guys I was working with in Korea are like, oh, yeah, well, I, I can teach you how to do that, LT. Yeah, I, I can help you become a PIC. And it wasn't using that scary mentor word. And then along the way, as they're training you to become a pilot in command, they started teaching you other things about the military. And so they did become a mentor without using the, the scary mentor word. So I tell people who want mentorship, 
Um, You don't need to ask for it formally. You can just ask for help from people with things that you would like to improve upon or do better. And then again, if also I I tell people who become mentors to be aware. I've there have been several times when I've found out really late in the game that I was someone's mentor and didn't realize it. This has happened numerous times at West Point where it's you know a month before graduation and a cadet that I've known for four years but didn't really have a particularly close interaction with will say, "Hey, ma'am, will you commission me?" Basically, make them a second lieutenant on graduation. And I'm I remember going, "Oh my gosh." I had no idea this person was looking up to me, was seeking mentorship for me. And so I also tell people kind of, you know, looking back, hey, pay attention, because sometimes you're a mentor to someone, you don't even realize it. And uh, hopefully it's not so late that you can't kind of direct more guidance and help to them um, because they're about to graduate and you're going to lose touch with them. So, but yeah, I, I, I kind of rambled a little bit there, but just some bits of advice in terms of you know, asking asking for help with something, even if you don't want to say mentorship. I, I think for the military, being physically fit, pursuing physical athletic uh, skill sets, if you're trying to go to a military academy, being uh, academically very strong, showing leadership traits, those are all things that are going to help you with that goal. And then and for a pilot, you know, I mentioned earlier, if, if you're a young woman wanting to be a pilot, you should seek out opportunities, uh, things like Civil Air Patrol, opportunities. A lot of times there's a lot of scholarship opportunities, especially geared towards minorities and women, particularly in aviation, because the community, like currently only 6% of all uh, airline pilots are women, 6%, which is tiny. That population gets even smaller if you're talking about, say, African-American women or Latino uh, women or Native American women. That community is exceptionally small. And the aviation field is looking to get those people more involved in aviation. There's a lot of opportunities to get into the field and break your way in and work your way up. Why do you think that population is so small? I'm speculating here, but I mean, I would say that traditionally the community has been male. It's it's been male. It's been um, uh, primarily white. And I think partly that is just because the community originally was not very accepting Uh, The Tuskegee Airmen, for example, the first African-American pilots in the military, uh, well, not first in the military, but the first ones in the U.S. military, we actually had several go to other countries to fly because they were not permitted to fly here, France, the U.K. Um, the, The Tuskegee Airmen had to work exceptionally hard for acceptance. Um, there were people of that era who said that they wouldn't be able to fly, that they wouldn't be brave enough to fight. Um, really things that we look at now and they just sound absolutely insane, but were accepted at the time. It was perceived that women wouldn't have the physical strength to control the aircraft. Earlier aircraft were all mechanical linkages. There were no systems to kind of overcome the amount of force you'd have to input into the control yoke or the stick to control the aircraft. We had women, the women's army service pilots from World War II who ferried aircraft around stateside, freeing up the men to deploy overseas. They demonstrated that, yes, women did have the physical strength to be able to control those early aircraft and did so magnificently. As a matter of fact, I believe, I'm trying to remember which aircraft it was, but one of the earliest, one of the biggest World War II aircraft, I'm blanking out on which one it was, Men were afraid to fly it because it was so big and people said it'd be so hard to fly. And so a lot of male pilots were refusing to fly it. I want to say it was a flying fortress, but I could be wrong. And uh, so a group of women, a group of wasps, ferried the aircraft to one of the airfields in Texas. And the men saw the aircraft landing and were like, oh, my gosh, these, these men must be so brave. They must be incredible pilots. And these women get out and they take off, you know, their their helmets and everything else and after that, no man wanted to let them fly it because they're like, oh, we'll fly that. And and it completely <laughs> changed the dynamic. Um, and uh, so women prove themselves, but it's still, it's been a very gradual thing. I think even in this day and age, uh, young girls still hear, oh, well, that's not, you know, a job for a woman or they, they don't see women role models. There's not as many of us because, again, going back to that 6%, as a woman pilot, you know, I walk through the uh, terminals and I'm, I'm even surprised when I see a woman airline pilot, like, oh, wow, woman pilot. Or if I get on the plane and it's like, oh, we have a woman captain today. Oh, the fact that I'm surprised by it says something. So 
young girls aren't seeing that. And, and certainly uh, young girls of color are, are not seeing enough of those people that they can identify with and say, oh, wow, look at her. She can do it. I can do it. So I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges to the community. It's changing, but I think it's still going to take a little while. And partly it's also just, you know, what, what people are interested in. But I think a lot of it is just having more role models, more people that they can look up to and say, I can do that and I want to do that. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think part of it is the you can't be what you can't see. And and hopefully this will help to, you know, change some of that, change women's minds about, you know, that there, there is a path for them here. Tell us about any major obstacles or challenges that you had to overcome. The biggest challenge and obstacle I had to overcome was my height. So it comes back to that. Um, even as a young pilot, young student pilot, flying really teeny tiny aircraft. So flying a Cessna 152, it's a two-seater, single engine. It's like, you know, the Volkswagen bug, well, even smaller. It's like, what's the really t- smart car? It's like the smart car of airplanes. It is tiny. Even in that, not all the seats adjusted. Some of them, the seats would move back and forth, but not up and down. When I went to get my private pilot's license, uh, the aircraft they issued me that day, the seat was broken. So it would only move forward and back and it wouldn't move up and down. So I literally walked into the into the, the flight school and I said, this is in 1990 to give you perspective on the next question. I said, do you have a phone book? And she looks at me and she goes, yellow pages or white pages? And I said, whichever one's thicker. And she said, sure. So she hands it to me. I go out. I take my check ride, come back. I passed. And I give her back the, the phone book. And she looks at me. She goes, you sat on that while you were getting your check ride. And I was like, yes, I did. <laughs> she goes, did you pass? I was like, yes. She's like, ah. Um, and so from the get-go, it is a little bit of a challenge. And even though I overcame it as a, a military pilot, one of the biggest challenges as a military pilot, you can't sit on a phone book in the Apache. You can't. Everybody jokes about, oh, do you have blocks on the pedals? No, that, none of that's authorized. So you have to be able to fly the aircraft competently with what you're given, with the height you've got. So is it like being a gymnast when you're in the seat there? <laughs> uh, no, not really. Um, it, you know, it's funny. I, I probably reach a little further than somebody for things overhead or, or a switch that's kind of far away. I might kind of lean a little bit where somebody else can just, you know, reach up there casually and flick the switch. You know, setting the park brake, uh, you kind of have to roll your toes a little further than probably the average person. And even that fact that, you know, in, when I was in flight school, when I was flying the OH-58 Alpha Charlie and the TH-67, which is basically a Bell Jet Ranger, it's kind of like the police helicopters that you might see, similar aircraft. I was straight arming it. Uh, when I got to the Apache, I was able to rest my elbow on my knee, and that made it much easier to fly. Uh, the Apache sized up better. It had more things like the pedals moved and the seat moved up and down. Whereas in the OH-58 and the TH-67, the only thing that was adjustable was the pedals. You could bring them forward or move them further out. And so it was, you know, once I got in the Apache, I was like, wow, this is so much easier. But definitely being as small as I am, that was a huge thing to overcome. Uh, even now, I mean, I sit, when I fly, I fly Piper Cherokees, Piper Warriors, and I've got a seat cushion, it's like a four inch, nice, you know, seat cushion that I've got the back and the under you and it's really great. That, I'd say, is probably the biggest challenge that I ran into. But I, I'm here to reassure you that even though I'm barely over five feet, I'm, I'm five foot and a half inch on a good day. Uh, the Army graciously rounds me up to five one. But even at my size, it's been totally doable. And, and frankly, I've met people of all different types of abilities who have flown. I've I got the great fortune to work with people from the Shepherd Center, which is a world-class spinal cord injury center down in Georgia Tech. Well, not at Georgia Tech, in Atlanta. I was at Georgia Tech. We were doing work. Part of my research was involved in working with people who uh, were tetraplegic, quadriplegic as a result of a spinal cord injury. And there are people who are quadriplegic who fly aircraft. There, Yes, um, they actually have aircraft. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but there's an aircraft made in Europe that is all hand controls. It has no feet controls required. And something a lot of people don't realize, people think of a quadriplegic, they think of someone who can't use anything from the neck down. But most quadriplegics actually have some use of their hands. It's just a bit reduced compared to somebody who's able-bodied or a paraplegic. So yes, I've known people who are quadriplegic who can fly. There's a young woman who's missing both arms who can fly with just her feet. They have restrictions on their licenses, but they're able to fly. So there is a surprising number of 
conditions that you might think would ground you but don't. And so I would say to anybody who has the the potential, they just want to fly, they have a love for it, they've got that passion, don't take no for an answer. Pursue it. I've had people say, oh, I'm colorblind. Okay, well, that may limit you in the military, but it doesn't necessarily limit you in the civilian sector to fly. Uh, matter of fact, a lot of the people that I've met who are civilian pilots didn't qualify for military flight for one reason or another, several of which are no longer issues. It used to be, had to be 20-20 vision, uncorrected, because we didn't have, you know, the ability to correct people's vision uh, with lasers and the like. And now you can, you don't have to have perfect vision to fly for the military. They'll do the correction. But a lot of the people I know that are my age, you know, in their 40s and 50s, they uh, did not go military because of that, but they became civilian pilots. And now they're very high-ranking uh, civilian airline pilots because they didn't let that limitation stop them. They found another avenue, another path to get to that goal of flying. So I would definitely say, yeah, there's that's my biggest challenge was the height issue. But it really has been a non-issue overall. And it's just because I wanted it that badly. You got to want it badly enough. And if you do, you'll find a way. Are there any misconceptions that you'd like to dispel? I think on the aviation side, I kind of mentioned a few of them. There's no such thing as being too short. There's no such thing as, you know, you you can't be a pilot because of of a particular disability or even a, a medical condition. Several of them can be worked through. The thought that it's mostly men. Um, that, that's been a common misconception that's out there that, oh, you know, it's, it's not a woman's community. It definitely can be. And there's actually organizations specifically for women pilots. So one of there's Women in Aviation, WIA. There's the 99s, which was originally founded by the 99 original women pilots. Actually, I think it was 99 of them that signed up to, to create the organization. Um, so there's groups to kind of bolster and support the community. So that's a, definitely a misconception. I, I mentioned, you know, if, if you get, you know, if you feel like you're uh, somebody who gets uh, motion sickness, um, doesn't mean you can't fly. I would definitely give it a shot and, and see after a few flights. Give it a few flights and then decide if it's really not for you. Other misconceptions I mentioned earlier, the academic preparation, you know, it helps if you like to do technical things, you like to tinker, you like to understand mechanical things. But it's certainly you don't have to have a degree in any of those things. And even interestingly enough, if you want to fly for the Army, um, you don't even have to have a college diploma, although it helps. Warrant officers uh, do the bulk of our flying. And warrant officers, you can actually graduate high school and go into the warrant officer program and become an Army pilot. Uh, So that's a unique path that a lot of people aren't aware of. And even on the civilian side, there is a preference by the airlines for people who have degrees by, by far. But... You don't need it to become a pilot and ultimately an airline pilot. So I'd say that's another misconception that is out there about being a pilot. I think also the notion that as a woman pilot, you're going to be um, given a hard time. I think in this day and age, that's really, we've come a long way past that. And the people that I've flown with have been very uh, warm and welcoming and accepting. I think that era has kind of passed. Unfortunately, I think some of the stigma still lingers in people's minds, and they think that it's still out there. And even um, being a, a woman serving in any of the military organizations that are traditionally male, I think that it's much more accepting now than it ever was before. We've had women uh, successfully complete ranger school, one of the toughest, most arduous courses offered by the military. And the guys are kind of going, okay, well, you know, she did it, and you're one of us now. And I think that it really for women, for people of color, people of uh, varying uh, sexual orientations, it, it really has the community is much more welcome and opening. And I think that's a, a generational thing that we're seeing, which I think is very positive. It's wonderful to hear that there's progress. Absolutely. Yeah. It's taken a few years, but we're getting there. What about safety? Um, some people who might consider flying say, well, you know, I don't know how safe that is. With The more hours you log, the more chances you have to go down. <laughs> so safety is a huge part of everything we do. I mean, it, it is our watchword day in, day out. Um, if, you know, if, if it doesn't feel safe, if it doesn't look right. You know, I always talk to the cadets about, you know, I just was flying with a cadet yesterday and I said, um, one of the biggest things I always tell people is, 
don't ever assume that just because somebody has more hours than you or more flight experience than you that they see everything that's happening. So I always say, if you see me doing something that doesn't make sense, by all means, say something. Never hold back. So that's a huge part of safety. When it comes to safety, I think that is the the biggest thing on everyone's mind in the aviation community. We one of the big thing, things we do in the military is if if there's an accident or even or even just something that occurs that concerns us, a lot of times we'll do a safety stand down. So we'll say, you know what, no one's flying today. We're going to sit and talk about what events led up to whatever caused us to have a safety stand down, how we can do things in a, in a safer fashion. What did we miss or what could we be doing better? That's one of the reasons we use checklists for everything we do. I will say, I think, I think to quote Superman, it's, I think he said to Lois, it's still by far the safest means of transportation. You know, we, <laughs> we joke as pilots that the most dangerous part of flying is driving to the airport. And uh, that is very true. Yeah, I've had some things happen. I've certainly had some some emergencies occur, but that's what we train for. I mean, we when you get into a simulator or an aircraft and you train emergency procedure after emergency procedure, and they get crazy. I mean, they'll do the take away your pedostatic system and your flying instruments, and suddenly you're in a thunderstorm, and now you've lost your electrical system. You know, you've lost engine one. And I mean, they give you the most crazy scenarios that um, that you then have to just fight through and work, work the problem, work the issue, and, and keep fighting to safely bring everybody down. So that that's a huge part of what we do. I mean, we, we train emergency procedures almost more than we train just normal procedures sometimes. And so I think that that's part of it. And I think also um, we a big thing that we do to promote safety is study what has happened in the past. So NASA has done a really good job producing narratives and stories and scenarios to share with people about situations that have occurred that were safely resolved or what occurred and what could have been done better to achieve a safe result. So NASA also has a program where pilots can report, self-report anonymously when they've had something happen that was unsafe that either they were responsible for or that they observed and they don't necessarily want to get the other person in trouble per se, but they just want it out there on the record that, hey, these things are occurring to then try to improve the safety overall of the entire community. So there's a lot of things like that that are going on to try to improve the safety culture overall, um, both in the military and uh, on the civilian side of, of aviation. So I think when you roll all that together, it uh, we focus on safety uh, at an exceptional level. And I think that should reassure people that when you're flying with us, we're doing everything we possibly can to provide a safe experience and training for every possible uh, scenario that occurs. And then when something does occur that no one's ever thought of, like Sioux City or Sully, you know, losing both engines at a very low altitude, we take those experiences, we, we roll up what we learn from it, and we put it out to the flying community so that people can learn from those situations. And if, heaven forbid, they end up in a similar situation or something that is close enough that they can apply some of those skill sets, they'll be able to do so. On that same topic, one thing that's been in the news lately is the saga with Boeing oh, and, yes. and their plane that seems to be a result of corporate malfeasance or pursuit of profits or something. Do you have any thoughts or have you discussed this amongst your colleagues and is there some sort of community-wide reaction or thoughts about it? So yes, I have discussed the Boeing 737 MAX situation with a lot of colleagues, a lot of good friends, a lot of people in the community, both military and civilian. And as an engineer myself, and a computer scientist, and a pilot, it's interesting because I'm kind of at the, the trifecta of what happened in this situation. I will say this, I am a fan of Boeing simply because I fly a Boeing product. The Apache is a Boeing product, which I absolutely love. Boeing has made some absolutely phenomenal and, and beautiful aircraft that, that fly wonderfully over the years. So in no way am I going to knock Boeing per se. But I believe, and this is my personal belief, not anything that's been vetted by um, you know the NTSB or the FAA or anything else, but from what I've read and what I've gathered and talking to other pilots in the community, I think what happened was, was a combination of two things. Boeing was seeking to compete with Airbus in terms of providing a, a more efficient engine. And the more efficient engines that they were seeking to put on the 737 were much larger. 
And in order to do that, they would have had to redesign the entire aircraft, but they wanted to stick with that 737 basic design and somehow find a way to put these engines on that aircraft and and do it in a safe fashion. That caused the aircraft to tend to pitch up almost to the point of stall. Stall in in the aviation community isn't the engine stalling. So a lot of times people confuse that. Uh, What it means is when the aircraft increases pitch, so basically when the nose goes up enough, eventually you'll reach what's known as a critical angle. And the the air flowing over the wings can no longer smoothly do so. You're no longer generating enough lift. And the aircraft will stall and can either go, sometimes the nose will just fall down. If one wing stalls first, it can go and do a spin. We practice them all the time, by the way. But it's not something you want to have happen with 300 people in the back unexpectedly right after takeoff. So what they did was they uh, put sensors on to detect if the aircraft was close to stall, which is normal. We do that. We have sensors. They're, they're very mechanical and old school on the little aircraft that we fly. But they will, you'll hear a stall warning horn or you'll get a stall warning light. On the more advanced aircraft, they have to, they'll actually have a stick shaker, so it'll st- the, the controls will start to shake to indicate that you're close to stall so that you'll put the nose down and, and break the stall. Well, the sensors that they put in the 737 MAX, they're supposed to be two, so they usually sell them with two. However, to some of the other countries, they were selling a cheaper version of the 737 MAX, more affordable, I should say, that only had one of the stall sensors. And what happened in this instance was you had... The stall warning sensor could be caused to be incorrect from various reasons. You could have a serious crosswind, and that could cause it. There's a lot of different reasons why that could happen. And they gave the ability of that stall warning sensor to forcibly lower the nose of the aircraft without pilot input. It was originally meant to kind of lessen the amount of force, but in the cases where we saw the the accidents, it was forcing the nose down, and the pilots could not recover from it. Now, there actually is a procedure which was successfully executed by several crews who encountered this uh, inability to bring the nose back up. There were several crews that executed a correct emergency procedure to uh, stop the the runaway trim, essentially, runaway trim condition. But not all pilots were made extremely aware of it. It was out there. It was part of the documentation for the aircraft. But there was not a lot of emphasis saying, I, I think part of it was a lot of pilots thought, well, I'm a 737 pilot. This isn't any different. This is, this is the same basic aircraft with a few differences, but they were, they, were, they were considered minimal. And so I think on that side, you had uh, crew training. You, you didn't get the word out strongly enough to these air crews to say, no, this is a different aircraft. And these are some emergency procedures that you need to have down cold. That's why I say it's not entirely a design issue, but it's also not entirely a, a pilot issue. I think it, it was, as with most tragedies, it was where a combination of multiple things caused these accidents to occur. It was pilots not being aware enough or not having enough training combined with not enough emphasis by Boeing on the fact that this is a completely different aircraft combined with selling an aircraft with one sensor as opposed to two. So the ones that we have in most of the U.S. fleet have two of these sensors. And if they're not in agreement, they, I believe, and I get I'm not 100% certain this, but I believe if they're not in agreement that the system automatically cuts off so that then it returns to pilot control. And so I think, you know, that decision, I'm sure it was a financial decision, but that was, you know, one that now they're going back and saying, well, from here on out, all 737 MAX will have uh, two of these angle of attack sensors and things like that. So partly it's a software problem. So they, there, there could have been software that said if, you know, well, first of all, if you have two sensors, if they're in disagreement, system's off, period. Partly it's a, a training issue. Make sure that pilots are made, you know, extremely aware of, of these emergency procedures and how to execute them. Matter of fact, in one of the accidents, I, I don't remember if it's Lion Air or the other one, um, a crew right before them had executed the emergency procedure because they'd had that same problem occur. Does the emergency procedure allow you to override? Yes, yes. Um, and so they perfectly executed the emergency procedure, um, but the next crew apparently was not as familiar with it and that resulted in the in the tragedy that occurred. So again, it's usually when you see these types of things happen, it's not one 
one thing. It's not just this or just this or just, it is, it is the intersection of three, four, five things that all go wrong together. Very rarely is it one thing goes wrong and and the whole system goes to pot. It's generally a combination of things. And I think that's what's happened in, in both of those tragedies. The good news is Boeing, Boeing has been working extremely hard to remedy this. It, it's tragic that we've lost lives in the meantime, but to their credit, they've been working over overtime to try to get a, a resolve, a resolution out for the 737 MAX. They're working very closely with the FAA, the NTSB. They're working with international partners that, that basically are the FAA in their, in, their comp- in their countries and the NTSB in their countries to make sure that when the 737 MAX is permitted to fly again, that it is going to be exceptionally safe. I do believe that in aviation, we do a really good job of learning from our mistakes. And I think this is one of those situations where everybody's learning from their mistakes and uh, working to resolve it so that safety is improved in the community and that and we don't see those things happen again. But um, aviation's been, you know, the whole the whole history of aviation, we've had things like this happen. This is not the first time. It's, I think, partly we're in, a, we're in an era where social media is very prevalent. People hear about these things happening. I'm sure a lot of people have never heard about Sioux City. And, you know, what, what aircraft designer puts a single point of failure through the tail and, and has a, you know, engine spinning at, you know, thousands of RPMs right in front of it? And, you know, to see the catastrophic failure that happened in Sioux City, most Americans, most people around the world have never heard of that. So I think it's a combination. You know, people are much more aware. And I think that's a good thing because it it demands public attention and then public cry out and say, we need to get this fixed. And so I think that it it results in much faster resolution of these types of problems. And that's a very good thing. So that that's a lot. And I'm not a lawyer. I am not an aircraft engineer. I'm not with any of those organizations. But this is just from what I've learned in, in researching it and talking with people. Is there anything that you've always wanted to do or achieve that you haven't yet? Um, one of the goals I've always had was to become an astronaut. And that is one that I have not achieved. I don't know if I will. I'm, I'm now... There's no upper age limit, but I'm definitely nearing the oldest astronaut that was selected. I believe was 48 when she was selected. I'm 46, so you can imagine I'm getting close. It was something, unfortunately, it was one of the very few times when my height did stop me. So I had an interview, went down to Johnson Space Center back in 2007, and everything went really well. And I got back to work a couple weeks later. There was a phone call from Colonel Jeff Williams, who was the chief Army astronaut at the time, who since has commanded the ISS and so forth, a very accomplished astronaut. And he called me up and it's like, there's a problem. I'm like, oh, what's the problem, sir? He's like, well, you know, the shuttle's retiring in a few years. I was like, well, yes, sir. And he goes, and, you know, we're going to be riding Soyuz for several years. And I was like, yes, sir. And he goes, I hate to ask, what's your height and weight? It's like, well, I'm 5'1 on a good day, 110, 115 pounds. And he said, I can't bring you down. And I said, Why? And uh, it turns out that they were narrowing the height requirements. Um, and, and of course, we've all seen this happen. So this past year with the whole suit issue. So we saw that the first all-female spacewalk had to be canceled. Uh, well, not canceled. They, they replaced Anne McLean with one of the male astronauts who was on board because of a lack of availability of, you know, of the EVA suits, the extravehicular activity suits, um, the EMUs, which were designed in the 1980s. They never designed smalls. They never designed extra, extra large. So what was happening, we had small astronauts. So the old height standards were four foot ten and a half to six foot four. And that height standard lasted for a good 30 years, from about 78 to about 2007 or so. And the really small astronauts and the really, really tall astronauts would stay inside the space shuttle and control the Canada arm. And those that were able to fit into an EMU, an EVA suit, would go out and do the EVAs. And unfortunately, that that was just the way it was. And now we're seeing there's a whole new suite of suits that have been designed. They're going to be rolling out. Matter of fact, they've done several tests using the new suits, which is extremely exciting. I think that's going to it's going to open it wide. I know Nancy Curry, who was the first female Army astronaut, uh, she's only five feet tall. And she's actually been used to test these new suits. She's been in the program since the 80s, very accomplished astronaut and pilot. She flew under shuttle, so her height was not an issue. But uh, she's been used to test the new small suits, 
and she says, yeah, there's, there's going to be a suit for you. Uh, and again, it may be too late for me, but I'm hopeful for the people who come after me that it's going to open up a, a possibility for smaller statured people, not just women. We also, there, there's a lot of, you know, especially if you look at different demographics of people of various nationalities, there's a wide variety of height spectrums that you see. And so I think this is going to open the door for a lot more people in the space program. I guess the good news about it, it you know, I often say, I, I chuckle, I say it's a Greek, Greek tragedy when I talk about my, my almost astronaut situation. But the good thing about it is having that as a goal led me to a lot of other things. So wanting to be an astronaut led me to want to become an aerospace engineer, which the reason I chose that path was I, I decided I wanted to be an astronaut when I was seven. I saw the first space shuttle launch on television. It was uh, STS-1, 12 April, 1981. And I got goosebumps. I got chills up my spine. You know, you just have that moment where you know that's what you're supposed to do. I had that moment. And it was amazing. And so I lived near NASA Lewis, now NASA Glenn, in Cleveland, Ohio. So I went with my parents. I also went with camp and things like that. It was one of the common places to visit. And I started doing my research at seven. And so I asked, you know, how do you become an astronaut? And so they had bios of most of the astronauts at the time. And they they had um, NASA Lewis gave me pamphlets that had that information and information about the astronauts. And at the time, 1981, the vast majority were military pilots who had degrees in aerospace engineering. So I made all my career decisions at seven, literally. <laughs> and... Uh, Oh, and most of them were military academy grads. Not all of them, but but quite a few had gone to military academies. And that really kind of paved my path for what I wanted to do and why I was going to go the, the route that I did. Um, it led me to, like I said, pursue a degree in aerospace engineering. And again, I was one of two women from my class to graduate with that degree from West Point that year. It led me to pursue being an instructor pilot because I thought that, well, that would be a good thing to do wanting to be an astronaut, it led me to want to earn higher degrees. So the master's degree, the PhD, a lot of those were goals that I had because I was you know, chasing this dream of being an astronaut. But the bit of advice that I tell people is, you know, shoot for the, you've heard the old adage, you know, shoot for the moon. And if you, you miss, you'll land among the stars. That is a very true statement. I have met people, been places, and had experiences that I probably never would have if my goal hadn't been to be an astronaut. I had the tremendous fortune to get to fly a replica of the 1902 Wright glider um, that was featured in several Centennial of Flight uh, programs on television and the History Channel and the Weather Channel, of all things. I got to take a 1903 down the rail. Unfortunately, we had no wind that day, so we didn't get off the ground. But I mean, I laid on the controls like Orville and Wilbur of a 1903 Wright Flyer and full throttle. There's no throttle control. It's on or off and went down that rail. And I mean, what an unbelievable experience to have. And the people that I met from that situation, because I wanted to be an astronaut, you know, earning my multi-engine license, becoming a scuba diver, becoming a skydiver. A lot of these things I said, well, you know, this will make me a good candidate. But I remember I got a really good bit of advice years ago from T.J. Creamer, an astronaut. He taught physics at West Point. And T.J. said, don't ever do anything in life just because you think it'll make you a better astronaut candidate. And that is advice that I give. I talk to cadets all the time. I get cadets and officers. There's a young man over at West Point, a captain, who has had just got to go out to NASA and, and was interviewed. And I gave him that very same advice. I said, listen, I said, you know, if, if that's if if you never make it, you got to be happy with what you ended up doing in life. You do things that you enjoy. And if they happen to make you a better astronaut candidate, great. But don't don't suffer through something just because you think it'll make you a better candidate. Do it because you love it and do things that you enjoy. But don't give up on the dream. I mean, I always tell them, it's like, I've, I've been trying to be an astronaut, gosh, since, you know, forever now. And I'll, I'll probably throw my hat in the ring one or two more times. Don't I don't expect to, to get anywhere with it. But, uh, you know, it was good to have gotten as close as I did. It was very, I'm trying to think of the right term. But you, you felt like you had been validated. Like they said, you know what, you were good enough. And through something that was not within your span of control, you didn't get it. 
But it was it was a very validating experience to have that interview and to have them say, uh, Dwayne Ross, he was the head of the astronaut selection committee at the time, say, you know, I asked him afterwards, I was like, is there anything I could do to be a better candidate? And he shook his head. He's like, nope. He goes, you're there. We pick people like you all the time. But there's a lot of people like me out there. There's a lot of just... And when I was down there and met other, you know, met astronauts and met other candidates that were competing for astronaut, and man, they are just incredibly talented people. And they come from vastly different walks of life. And, you know, it was just exciting to be there and to meet those kinds of people who have a passion for exploration, a passion for science, a passion for research. That that was just so much fun. So, you know, go for that that larger than life goal. Shoot to become the president, and then you know, end up being a senator. Gee, wow, that that's terrible, right? It's the same kind of thing. You know, I, I shot for being an astronaut, and I'm now a colonel in the army and a, and a an associate professor at West Point, and I've had these tremendous experiences in life as a result of that goal. So, have that crazy larger than life goal. Pursue it with a vengeance. And know that it's going to end up being really an amazing experience, regardless of whether you achieve that that one vaunted goal or not. Wonderful. What a terrifically inspiring story and journey. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.